If you turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, as we continue our sermon series in the book of Revelation, uh, it's actually part two of our sermon series on the topic of eschatology. And today we're looking at uh, Jesus' address to the third church at, in the city of Pergamum. Uh, and, and this is the, you know, the title of the sermon is The Compromising Church. And so if you found your place, Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Hear now God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us this morning. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. And so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace and your mercy toward us in Christ. O oh Lord, we pray that you would help us, Father, to uh, have our minds set upon you and help us to understand your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The word compromise has as I'm sure you know, different connotations. Sometimes it's good. We talk about compromise. Uh, you and your wife, you disagree where you're going to go on vacation, and uh, like me and Ursula in our household, so Ursula just says, okay, well, go wherever you want to go, John. That's a great compromise. <laughs> That's the way you compromise. Thank you, honey. <laughs> oh, seriously, though, no, but what you do is maybe an idea is you say, well, we'll decide this year we'll go to where I want to go, and next year we'll go where you want to go, so we compromise. Or in the church, we're all familiar with the disagreements over the color of the rug. Uh, so they're, instead of going into a church split, we compromise, a church split. So we have the blue church, blue Presbyterian church, blue rug, blue carpet Presbyterian church, and red rug uh, Presbyterian church. Well, instead of that, we compromise, and we decide to get a neutral colored rug or something like this, right? We, we agree. We don't split over that. We, we have a compromise. Contract negotiations, we know how those go. We all start high and maybe very, very high, but we always have to kind of work out a compromise situation to come to reach an agreement. So there are good things about compromise, but there's also a problem with compromise. Compromise is wrong when moral issues and essential doctrines of the faith are involved. When it comes down to truth, there is no compromise. When it comes to moral principles, there is no compromise. When it comes to essential Christian doctrine, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the, the deity of Christ, and the gospel, that, that we're saved by God's grace alone, through the sacrificial death of Christ alone, and his bodily resurrection, 
and, by, and we, we receive that through faith alone. Those are things you cannot compromise. And so, as one commentator says, we can compromise on preferences, but not on principles. And he goes on to say what makes compromise so dangerous is the subtle way that it approaches us. Compromise very often doesn't involve a wholesale capitulation to worldly ways or ideals. It accommodates them. Compromise says that we can have the idol and keep Jesus too, says this commentator, and I agree. And this was the case at the church in Pergamum. Church of Pergamum, here's a little map here on the left. You see where Pergamum is there. Pergamum was the seat of political power. It was like the capital of Asia Minor, the seat of political power for the Roman Empire. It was known for, its, for the arts, for literature. It was known for, uh, for its adherence to and the worship of many false gods. And it had in particular, and of course, uh, emperor worship would be involved with this as well, and the worship of many false gods, as I said, among whom was the god of healing called Asclepius. People from all over the world, and that's this temple there, the ruins of the temple there in the, in the top left-hand, top right-hand corner, the temple of Asclepius. People would come from all over the world and would actually sleep in that temple so they could get healing, and they would come to the temple, to the shrine of Asclepius, the Savior. Asclepius, the Savior. They would go there to be healed. And then we see their modern ruins as well on the bottom right. And so it was in this context that was really saturated with religious evil, moral evil. Jesus will describe it as the throne of Satan. It's in that context that we see that this church of Pergamum was situated. And so the exalted Lord, seen as having the sharp two-edged sword, he comes now riding through John, and he gives them a commendation. They've been faithful. They've suffered persecution. Even one of their own had died. But somewhere along the line, compromise with the world began to creep into the church. And so, the Lord comes to them. And here's the main idea. Christ, the exalted Christ, mediates the sword of God's word and calls his church to not compromise with the world, but to confront its false teachings, that should say. To confront its false teachings. And so there are five points we're actually going to look at this morning, following the, the basic structure of all the seven letters. And the first point is the description of Christ. Description of Christ. In each church, we see Jesus, in chapter 1, he gives a description of himself. And in each church now, he goes back to that, one of those descriptions and he applies it to the church that uniquely fits the situation of the church being addressed. So in verse 12, he is described as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, that is God's word. So he has God's word because we know as touching his divine nature, as Jesus has told us, he is the first and the last. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the sovereign Lord. He is the eternal Lord. He is the one by whom and through whom 
All things have been created. He is the one that the Apostle John says in John chapter 1, he is the eternal Lagos. He is the word who in the beginning was with God and was God and who said, let there be light and there was light. And so as God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, what comes from him is the word of God. The word of God, it's his word. It issues forth from him. But also we understand as touching Jesus' human nature, Jesus is the great prophet, priest, and king. He's the exalted prophet. Now, he's the one as Messiah through whom God's word is mediated. As Hebrew 1 tells us, in the former days, God spoke through the prophets, but now in these last days, he's spoken to us through who? Through the Son. And so Christ mediates the word. He owns it and he gives it to us and through his servants. And there's two key things to, to see about this word, this sword of God's word. First of all, it's described as sharp, sharp. That conveys power. And so we see in Romans, or Hebrews chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews said, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and marrow. So we see the power of God's word. I would say the uh, the borrow a phrase, the expulsive power of God's word. God's word is able to cut through all falsehood. God's word is able to cut through the soul of man. It lays us bare before him. It puts us naked before God. And God's word and by the spirit is able to beget faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And the two-edged sword here, it's two-edged. Two-edged. It cuts both ways. To give you an idea about a two-edged sword, because I was like, what does, I wonder about a two-edged sword. If you're like me, what does that mean? I don't wield swords, and so I wanted to get an understanding of this. And you'll be shocked to understand, you'll be shocked to know that a double-edged sword means that the sword has two edges. Two. And then there's a single-edged sword. <laughs> It's a single-edged sword on the top and the double-edged sword there on the bottom. And people actually dispute on which one was best to have in battle. Would it be the one that had the double edge or the single edge? And there's pros and cons to each. But if it was me, I'm just going to tell you, I'll take the double-edged sword. Thank you very much. <laughs> I want to cut this way and that way. Whatever way I can cut, I'm going to cut. And so it's described as a double-edged sword. But there's something else here as commentators. Some commentators are read, brought out something very interesting about the double edges. God's sword, the sword of the word, it cuts, it's double-edged, it cuts to blessing on the one hand and curse on the other. To salvation on the one hand and condemnation on the other. And you cannot escape the cut of that sword. No one can. And as we know, as Isaiah tells us, God's word never returns void. And of course, of course, when people hear that, they think, well, I know, but I share God's word and the person didn't receive Christ. Therefore, God's word returned void. No, God's word always, always, always accomplishes what it was set out to do and whomever it was given to. In the one person, it will be seed being laid. In another, it'll be like being planted. In another one, uh, watered. In another one, God will give the increase. In another one, the word will actually work toward the hardening of the person. And so the word never, ever comes back void. It is a double-edged sword. Blessing, curse, salvation, condemnation. 
And then we see another thing here about the word of God that comes into view, I think, or it's definitely inferred, and that is the issue of authority. The issue of authority. And this is just the word of application for us, and here's what we mean, an issue of authority. The bottom line is that we are either going to live by God's word or our word. We're either either going to think God's thoughts after him or think our own thoughts after ourselves or the world's thoughts after it or the devil's thoughts after him. Who says? By what standard? That is the issue of life. How do you know? How do you know anything at all? How do you know who God is? How do you know who you are? How do you know anything at all? It all comes back to God's word, the issue of authority. And we know as the reformers taught us, in distinction from the Roman Catholic Church, which wrongly has two, uh, has the word of God as an authority that it, it exalts tradition as equal to the word, and then it, it creates all kinds of false dog, dogmas because of that that you have to subscribe to. The reformers taught, no, God's word alone is the supreme authority in faith in life and practice. And here's the thing. No one is exempt from that authority. No one. Not the king, not the peasant, not the pauper. No one. Not the government. Now there's an application here I'd like to look at here with regard to that. While the state can't tell you who or how to worship, God has not left the state to govern itself. We know in Romans 13 that God has appointed the government. He's given them the sword. But it doesn't mean that the government now has carte blanche to just kind of make up laws willy-nilly according to what it thinks is right or to what a group of men and women think is right. No, we are all called to be governed by God's word alone. Every policy, every law must flow out of God's word and must be consistent with God's word. Nobody has a right to do anything apart from that. And so part of this, while the state can't tell you who or how to worship, it has not been left to govern as it sees fit. All of life, including government and politics, is to be lived under God's rule, before the face of God. And rulers will be held accountable for that. How can they be held accountable for whatever policies they create and laws they create if they're not accountable to God's word for those things? And then secondly, that comes out of this. While freedom of religion is true in the sense that no one can or should force us to believe, I'm going to say something controversial here, and I hope you understand what I'm trying to say. From God's perspective, there is no freedom of religion. Man is not free to worship whoever or whatever he wants. The first commandment, you'll have no other gods before me in my presence. There's only one way. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God's word doesn't ask for our consideration but demands our obedience and commands all people everywhere to repent. Change your mind. 
You're going that way. Stop. You're following that way. Stop. And turn this way. Turn to me. Renounce your false gods. Renounce your false religion. And turn to the one true and living God. And so, yes, freedom of religion for, for, from a human perspective is a good thing. So like the state can't tell you what to do, but before God, no, we must worship and serve the one true and living God alone. He commands us to turn to him. It's his way, the narrow way or the broad way that leads to destruction. And so the issue of authority here that comes out of, that flows out of this, who are we going to listen to? Who are we accountable to? Who must we submit to? And that is a key issue that we're going to see in our text today as we talk about this whole idea, this whole reason of compromise. Who's the authority in our life? And so Jesus mediates the sharp two-edged sword, God's word to us, and he commands us to wield the sword in the word, in the world. Ephesians 6, he tells us to put on the full armor of God, to take up the sword of the spirit, which is his word, right? That's what we're called to, to wield, as it were, in the world. The sharp blades are God's law and the gospel that exposes us as sinners before a holy God and declares that Christ has borne the sharp sword of God's justice on the cross so that all who repent and trust in Christ alone can be saved from their sins and can be transformed by the sword of God's word that works in us to cut away sin and to progressively carve out the image of Christ in us. That takes us to the second point here, the commendation of Christ. Verse 13, as with all his letters, Jesus says, I know. And of course, Jesus knows because he is God. He's all-knowing. He's the omniscient one. But he also knows because he is with his people. By his spirit, we're in union with Christ. He says that he walks in the midst of the lampstands. He walks among his people. He's with his people, so he knows in that sense. And he says, I know where you dwell. Now, that's just, just a side note here. Just, this is for free, this part here. <laughs> it's a side note. Isn't it good news to know that the Lord knows where you dwell? He knows exactly where you are at all times. That's good news, and it could be frightening news on the other hand. But for us as believers, it is good news. He knows exactly where you dwell. He says, I know where you dwell. And of course, they dwell in Pergamum. Pergamum, again, Pergamum, as commentators point out, was the headquarters, actually, of four different cults. And the seat of power in Asia Minor, again, the center for arts and literature. Verse 14 and 15, it talks about how it was marked by sexual immorality. That sexual immorality, no doubt, related to the temple prostitution. And so you can think of Pergamum as kind of Washington, D.C., and Hollywood, and Las Vegas, all wrapped up into one. It was a swamp sin city, something like that. <laughs> and you have to understand this too, the population was deeply committed to those false gods and to emperor worship. We saw that in Smyrna, and the, the problem in Smyrna, you had this Jewish population that was persecuting the Christians and, and slandering them to the, pagan, to the pagans around there. But here, I would say you have the true believers, or more than that, the zealots. 
These were radicals. And of course, we're going to see how radical they are. They are persecuting the church. So profound is the depravity in this place and the satanic influence that Jesus calls the place Satan's throne. It's where Satan's throne is. It could also be a reference to the very large altar and throne to Zeus that was there in one of the temples. But I think more in line here is this idea of just to show just how deeply depraved the culture is. It's where Satan's throne is. It's where he dwells. It's his home turf. And in that context, Jesus commends them. He says that they held fast to his name. Held fast to his name. His name. The essence of who Jesus is and all of his glory as the Alpha and the Omega, as the first and the last, as the Word who was with God and, and is God as the second person of the Trinity, as the one who was also fully human without ceasing to be God, the one who, who became incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the one who was just as human as we are yet without sin, the one who, who obeyed the law perfectly at all points or we disobey it at all points, the one who went to the cross and bore the curse of God on our behalf and rose bodily from the dead and has ascended into heaven and as Philippians 2 says, now as he has ascended into heaven, he has received the name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is what? Lord to the glory of God the Father. They held fast to the name, to who he was. They refused to say, Caesar is Lord. They refused to say, Asclepios is Savior. But they were steadfast in their profession that Jesus Christ alone is Lord and Savior. And they did this, the text says, even in the days of Antipas. Antipas was obviously, or clearly can infer, it was one of their own. Very likely, maybe it was a church leader. Maybe it was their former pastor. That's why maybe he calls them out. This is the example here. Maybe not, because he'd just been just a guy that was there in the church. But he says, he, he calls him his faithful witness. This word faithful witness is what Jesus refers to himself as, or what Jesus is referred to as in Revelation chapter 1. Jesus, the Messiah, was the faithful witness. He declared the will of the Father. He declared God's word unto death. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, yet did not open his mouth. And here he applies that same thing of faithful witness to this man, Antipas. Faithful witness, the word witness, martyr, martyr. He was faithful unto death. And all Antipas had to do was say the simple words, Caesar is Lord. That's it. Just say Caesar is Lord and you can go your way. Jesus Christ is king. Jesus is Lord. And they witnessed these things, Jesus says. The church there. And so in this place of such satanic influence, they were faithful in, in that case. Now just the application here. <clears throat> and here I just have to warn you, 
This will be a little tough sledding as we go. Our culture, I don't think it's any surprise to say that it is steeped in evil. Um, I thought about how Jesus says that the throne of Satan was found in Pergamum, and it would seem as though it's been relocated to, <laughs> to, our, to our nation. It's found throughout the world, but you get the point. And it was really on display, I think, no surprise here, at the Grammys last week. And there we saw this man named uh, Sam Smith, and uh, says they're non-binary, pop star, non-binary. He doesn't identify as either, neither, as either male or female, performs BDSM, devil-themed, unholy, the song Unholy at the Grammys, with his partner, Kim Petras, who is a man who identifies as a woman. So they perform this song, Unholy, there, and you can see some of the pictures there. It's very explicit. It's very bad. Madonna, of course, the angel Madonna, uh, she introduced them, and of course she has some very good things to say about them, and she says, it gives me great pleasure to introduce two incredibly talented artists who have risen above the noise, the doubt, the critics, into something, listen, beautifully unholy. Unholiness is beautiful. Something beautifully unholy. And of course, before that, we're talking about thanking people for the sacrifices they make, they're making and standing fearlessly for what they believe here in terms of transgenderism, the LGBTQ agenda, and so on. So they're surrounded by gyrating dancers with whips and fire behind them and all these things. And it's just really what we see here. And people say, it's just a performance. I get it. But you understand what they're actually doing. These are true believers. And of course, it's just a small example of the evil that's permeating our culture as we celebrate unbridled sexual immorality in many different forms. Heterosexual sin, homosexual sin in, in, in every conceivable form. And now the culture is even talking about pedophilia as being something that is going to be, is okay. They have words for it now. Uh, minor attracted person is one thing. You see, that's what happens. Is that once you go down that road, once you say, listen, these are just my desires. I can't help myself. That's my attraction. That's my orientation. I can't help that. That's how God made me. Then it must be okay. I can't change that. It must be okay to do these things. It's, come, it's already here. It's going to come even more. Unbridled sexual immorality, and of course with that is the accompanying sacrament of, for them, of abortion on demand. And now, of course, our country has slaughtered over 60 million babies in the womb. 60 million babies. Sounds like Satan's throne to me. As we offer our children to the god of Moloch, so to speak. Despite that, we have politicians here, instead of wearing a lapel pin with the American flag, they proudly display a lapel pin of abortion. And of course, in the middle there, you see the heart. I love abortion. In other words, and of course, I say, you have to, what, what is the word abortion? What does it mean? What does it convey? Abortion is the barbaric slaughter of an innocent baby. So he's saying, I love the barbaric slaughter of innocent human beings. And he's walked, both of them are walking around proudly displaying that on their lapels. That's how seared our consciences have become. 
And so what God calls evil, the culture calls good. It celebrates and, and it indoctrinates us in the evil. It's all throughout the culture. How did this happen? Well, just look at our schools. Look at Hollywood. Look at media. The indoctrination continues. We have drag, drag queen story hour, which pitches itself as a family-friendly event to promote reading, tolerance, and inclusion. And they state this, quote, in spaces like this, kids are able to see people who, who defy rigid gender restrictions. In other words, we defy what God has clearly put in place. That's what we defy, those rigid restrictions. And we imagine a world where everyone can be their, quote, authentic selves. In other words, if I feel like a girl, I can be a girl. If I feel like a boy, I can be a boy. Or not identify as any other. Pick some other pronoun that I want to, of the 150 ones that I want to be. Many stories of these, of, of men who dress like this and yet uh, in, in women's clothing and explore sexual themes with the children. You see, you have to see the power of the image. He has the book. And he's pointing down, the book is an LGBTQ book. See, kids? See, boys and girls? This is what's right. This is what's good. And this is what's circulating throughout the culture today, in our public school system, in our libraries. And then we see the protesters on the right. Militant trans activists occupy uh, Oklahoma Capitol on Monday to try to stop conservative lawmakers from passing bills banning the transitioning of children in the state. The transitioning of children, of little children, boys and girls, trying to stop them from having bottom surgeries and top surgeries. They're protesting because that's what they want. And they believe. They're true believers. They're more vocal and brave and fearless for such teaching than we are as the church. We can say we can curse the darkness, but where's the church? What are we doing? What are we saying? Well, we have to expose the darkness, but look at them. So they're protesting. The point, and there's lots of points we could talk about, and I, I'm already running out of time. <laughs> we have to remain faithful in Christ. Because this is the pervading worldview that is in the world today. It's all around us. And we have to stand strong in Christ, faithful in Christ, in the midst of a culture filled with its objective evil. Right? Oh, that just sounds so harsh, John. It's not harsh. It's the truth. It's the truth. And we're called to stand for the truth and declare the truth. Pergamum did, but we see compromise began creeping into the church, which takes us to the next point here. Chat, uh, point number three, the call of Christ. Satan couldn't get them to deny Christ through persecution, so he launched more insidious and more insidious, subtle attack and infiltrated their ranks like a good army general. How can we, we can't get them here on this front, how can we actually penetrate the ranks and get inside and subvert them from within? 
And then he uses the example in verses 14 and 15. He compares the situation to that of the Israelites. See, there are the Israelites. They were on their way after all this time in the wilderness. They're on the, the edge of the promised land. We're just about there. We're right there. And then King Balak of Moab, he's like, hey, I'm scared. I, I, I'm scared. I'm scared of these people. <laughs> I'm afraid. And so he calls this guy, Balaam, this seer for hire, if you will. He says, what I want you to do, I want you to pronounce curses upon the Israelites. Curse them, and then it'll go well for us, and maybe we can defeat them. And so Balaam comes, you know the story, he comes, and he, he, three times he tries to pronounce a curse upon them, and it doesn't work. Maybe it was four times. But anyway, he pronounces curses upon them, it doesn't work, so he has to come up with another plan. And he counsels, by like, here's what you need to do, seduce them with your women. Have them go into your women, and then that's what they did. The Israelites did. As Jesus says here, G- Balaam put a stumbling block. He taught, uh, he taught him to put a stumbling block before Israel, to seduce them that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. And that's what we see here in Numbers 25, 1 through 3. While Israel was in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. What strong language began to whore with them? They were married to Yahweh, the Lord their God, but they said no, and he told them, you don't do this, and they did it anyway. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, yoked himself. And here's, you can almost hear the rationalization, the compromise right? We're on our way to the promised land. These are going to be our neighbors. Hey, we can, we can kind of mix with them. It'll be okay. We'll get them to convert and, be, and worship Yahweh. So what harm will it be? And bonus for us, we'll get to have their women and maybe their land. No, they, they drew them after these other gods. And of course, God then comes with the sword against them. So Jesus draws the parallel between what happened to Israel with what was happening at the church of Pergamum by a group called the Nicolaitans who were just like Balaam. They're not sure exactly what the specific doctrine that they held to, but it's likely along the lines of compromise here. It was a, a way to try to hold on to Christian distinctives while compromising with the world. That what would, would seems to be what's going on here. Sexual immorality was involved. And so it would go something like this. You don't have to deny that Caesar is Lord in public. Those are just words. You just say what you need to say to appease them in the culture so that you can actually get a job and feed your family. What's more important, feeding your kids or not? You know Caesar is Lord. You know Jesus is Lord. Just say the words. Then you can eat. And you can participate in the celebrations and the feasts at the temples and the sexual practices associated with it because you know that they're false gods. Ha, 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 I know they're false, but just go and participate in those things. That way you won't be a cultural outsider. You'll be accepted by the culture. And wouldn't it be, what a great thing. You'll be in an ideal place to be able to minister the gospel to them because you're not going to be seen as holier than thou and judge them. 
God knows your heart. You'll be in a great position now. Just do that. So, don't know exactly, but you can almost hear something like that. That's what seems to be underneath the surface here with this text. And so, some were buying this. Yeah, life would be much easier. So, they're eating food, sacrificed to the idols. They're, they're, they're engaging in the cult practices to include sexual morality. And the sexual morality here, we could say it's both literal and figurative, spiritual. Spiritually, we digest the worldview and beliefs of the culture like tasty morsels. We consume them so that we can pursue our idols. We're looking for a justification, a rationalization. If I could just find a way to do this, but I'll still hold on to Jesus, that would be great. But the whole time we're committing spiritual adultery against the Lord. And ultimately, you know, here's the reality is that every sin ultimately is an act of spiritual adultery against the Lord. We're saying, this is better than Jesus. This is where true satisfaction is. Right? That's ultimately what it is. And so as James says, you adulterous people, talking to the church, okay? (laughs) Talking to the church. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Which way are you going to go? This way or that way? And understand, if you go that way, it's not that, well, God's going to be a little bit displeased with me. No, you're his enemy. Just an application here. The church has always faced temptation of compromise, like the Israelites, like the church of Pergamum, all down through its history. We're in a culture that's hostile to God, as I've already shown. Biblical values are being destroyed. Many Christians are compromising with the culture, tossed to and fro by the false philosophies of the world. False False philosophies like critical race theory, in the LGBTQ agenda, and postmodernism, which says there is no truth except the truth that you have, and secularism, which says that, well, there's probably not a God, and man is the measure of all things. And one word that might sum all that up, you're trying to find one word that just captures that, it might be the word wokeness. We've all heard wokeness. We're trying to, Timothy and I, I want to come up with a definition for this because it's just hard to, to wrap your arms around. And it still is. We were both going around, going around about it. Well, here's a, uh, an attempt anyway. Wokeness definition, if you can see it, it's very small on the screen. And this isn't, this isn't exhaustive, just some key things that we thought about, and as I looked at other sources as well. It rejects absolute truth in favor of personal feelings and experience. What I feel, that's God. It divides people into two groups, oppressor and oppressed based on intersectional identities of race, ethnicity, sexual preference, gender, etc. Your, your level of victimhood is determined by the number of intersecting identities that you possess. So, a uh, Hispanic woman, gay, etc. Atheist. It seeks to transfer cultural and political power and privilege from the oppressors to the oppressed through a government system of redistribution. Does that sound familiar? that ensures equal outcomes, that's equity, not equal opportunity. 
just give me, I want an equal opportunity to get in the door and then on, on my own merits be able to, to, to show. No, it has to be equal outcomes according to this. And then it's authoritarian. If you don't submit, if you so much as raise a peep of protest, we will protest, we will burn down, we will cancel you. That's just for starters. That's where we're at now. It's going to get worse, I think. A woke church in Chicago said it was, quote, fasting from whiteness for Lent by banning all hymns by Caucasian musicians. <laughs> you know what that's called? In the name of anti-racism? Racism. <laughs> the Church of England is considering the use of gender-neutral terms for God. Francis Schaeffer put it well. He said, quote, tell me what the world is saying today, and I'll tell you what the church will be saying in seven years. You get the point? Because that's what's flooding into the church, and many churches now are embracing the heresy. They're embracing gay marriage, calling themselves welcoming and affirming, or others just refuse to clearly say that homosexual desires and behavior is sinful. If you disagree with what the culture says, if you don't bow down and in effect say that culture is Lord, then you will be canceled. You'll lose your business. If you don't bake that cake, you're a bigot. But see, the church is called to declare Christ. We're called not to remain silent in the face of darkness, but to expose it with the light of God's word. With, I would add, Gentleness and respect. You know, whoever asks you for a reason for the hope that you have. That also doesn't mean you can't be firm. <laughs> now, question. Are you willing, and it's for me, too, are you willing to be a cultural heretic for the sake of Christ? Am I willing to be a, a cultural heretic for the sake of Christ? Because that's what it's coming down to. That's what it is. And you know what they do to heretics back in the day. Are we willing to take up our cross and follow Christ and declare his word, let the chips fall where they may, for the sake of Christ? Now those are, we could call the technicolor things. Those are, the, we really will say this, that's the easy stuff we can look at. That's the obvious stuff we can look at, right? But there's also the little compromises that we make in our own personal lives. Oh, no, there he goes. Wait a minute. He's coming at us now. <laughs> Ways that we accommodate the world in our thinking so that we can hold to our idols and still have Jesus. How do we do those things in our own personal lives? Well, I want to keep the peace, so I won't talk about Jesus. Uh, I want the acceptance of people, so I might deny that that I even know Jesus? Or am I engage in the same behaviors that my friends engage in and just keep it a secret that I'm a Christian? Because I want to be accepted by the in crowd. Kids, right? That's one of the biggest temptations you're going to face. Come on, man. You're a Christian? Ah, don't worry about that. Jesus, he'll forgive you. Don't worry about it. Just come and have a good time now. Jesus wants you to have a good time. See, you know how I know that, how I know that pitch? Because I used to give that pitch to my Christian friends. 
And I was good. I was a good evangelist for Satan. <laughs> Thankfully, the Lord changed my heart. Sexual morality isn't just about LGBTQ sin, right? The biggest issue of sin in the church isn't LGBTQ stuff. It's heterosexual sin. The lust of our eyes, our infatuation with images, our clicking on that site we know we shouldn't click on, internet pornography, premarital sex. And we listen to the reasoning of the world. Well, you have to test drive the car before you, take, before you, you know, buy it, right? No. Many ways that we compromise, right? We turn God's grace into a license, or we, we meet a great person who checks all the boxes. I'm single, and I've been praying to marry somebody. Here's this person. They do all these things, except they're not a Christian. But it's okay, because I'll witness to him or her, and then they'll become a Christian. I had a friend who did just that and married an unbeliever, and it's been very hard. To their credit, they're still married, but what fellowship does light have with darkness? So we see the call to them. Jesus says, repent. Now there's a church here. You see where they stand now, totally committed to, not to Christ, but to those things. The call of Christ is to repent. A deadly cancer has entered the body, but it must not be allowed to spread. Otherwise, the whole body will be infected and destroyed. And so verse 16, Jesus calls them to repent, or he will come to war against them, that those who are doing those things with the sword of his mouth. Imagine standing, in, you're in the church, and the pastor says, Jesus, I'm going to war against those who are doing these things. And so the call to the church is, listen, you, the leaders in the church especially, you have to war against the false teachers in your midst with God's word. You have to bring about church discipline. Because if you don't, I guarantee you I'm going to do it. And if I do it, it's not going to go well. It will not go well. That's more or less the point of what Jesus is saying. And it's not just repent from, like, Say, well, we don't agree with the false teachings. It is confront those teachers. Confront them with the truth of God's word. Call them out by name. And you want to see them repent. And that takes us to the final point here, the call of Christ. Two things he gives to the one who will conquer. I'll give the hidden manna. Manna, of course, going back to the Israelites in the wilderness. Christ is the true manna of God. God fed his people there the man of God's people spiritually is Christ. We feed upon him by his word and by his spirit. He is the bread from heaven that we feast upon now. But one day, there's even more. One day we're going to feast fully with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I've already told you what you can expect for food at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a great pasta banquet. So if you don't like pasta now, <laughs> you will then. <laughs> That's what it's going to be, right? The hidden manna. He holds out to you. You have it, but you're going to have it even more in fullness. And then I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except that one. The white stone, likely, it's different interpretations, but likely has view to the legal proceedings of the ancient world. The white stone was used to declare innocence and the black stone, guilt. And so the idea is, listen, 
in Christ now who died for your sins, suffered, bled, and died, bore God's wrath on the cross. You now, as a believer, in union with Christ, you have been given the white stone. Endure to the end. That is your stone. Your name has been engraven on that stone. You have been declared not guilty. You've been declared innocent before God's bar of justice. Why? Because the innocent one, Jesus Christ, bore the condemnation that you deserved. And now he declares you innocent, and not just innocent, but get this, righteous in his sight because the perfect righteousness of Christ is given to you. That's what he holds out to us today. And as usual, I've gone too long, so let me bring this to a close. Christ has a two-edged sword. He tells us, who he is and who we are. Have you come to the place in your life where you have renounced yourself, your sin? If not, I plead with you today to turn to Christ who bore the sword of God's justice for you on the cross so that you don't have to. And if you have, let us not compromise with the world. Let us go back to God's word. Take up the sword of the spirit. Meditate upon the sword of God's word day and night. And then let us take up the sword of the spirit by his spirit and wield it in the culture with grace, with love, with gentleness and respect, calling people to come to Christ, to leave their sin behind and to receive Christ and enter into the fullness of who he is so they can feast with him and with us forever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for your grace toward us in Christ. Help us, Lord, to turn our eyes upon you. Because as we do that, the things of this earth will go strangely dim. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us rise as we sing.